0: You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor, JC Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Kandi Terry.
1: I got to be honest, JC and I were beside ourselves as we headed to the home of Jim Messina. There we were in her little silver Toyota Corolla, winding our way down country roads lined with white open rail fences and horses grazing. We were tooling along singing, you guessed it, your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll. And of course we did this at the top of our lungs. I'm serious, it was crazy. But here's the thing, we may be interviewing country music icons on this series, but we are fans of the artists and the music first. And when you think about the career of Jim Messina, there's a lot to talk about. His legacy of musical genius spans five decades and it includes groundbreaking work with Buffalo Springfield, Poco, and Loggins and Messina. He's also got a stellar solo career that thrives to this day. He is also the creator and the facilitator of the Songwriters Performance Workshop, where he gets a chance to mentor singers and songwriters. Now, you may know him as a gifted guitarist, a singer, and a songwriter himself, but Jim Messina is also a stellar producer and a highly skilled sound engineer with a real ear for talent.
0: You know, when somebody is really gifted and really talented, it's really apparent. You don't have to have a lot of hype and a lot of bullshit. You don't have to be wearing funny clothes or have funny hats or, or no clothes. It's just there.
1: We couldn't wait to sit down with this icon to talk about hit songs we all know by heart and everything in between. As we made our way through the gates of his farm, there he was, waving from his wraparound porch. Jim greeted us with such warmth and openness. And let me tell you, he is a great storyteller. We settled into big leather couches in his living room, and I pressed record on an interview that is one of the most authentic and inspiring conversations we've had so far. Jim Messina is a real California guy who came of age in the 1960s, so I asked him to tell us about his early musical influences.
0: Well, see, I started being interested in music, really interested in it, in the seventh grade. That's when I first started listening. And my dad was a musician, so he you know, helped me to learn the guitar, become familiar with it. By the time I graduated the eighth grade, I loved living at the beach. I thought I was going to be a beach bum and enjoy all the beach bunnies and all that stuff. And my parents decided to move to the Inland Empire, which was in Colton, California, between Riverside and San Bernardino. And that's all future farmers of America. There's no ocean. <laughs> I was just bummed.
1: Devastated.
0: Devastated. And I was it was going to my first year of high school. My grandmother saw that I was just depressed. And she knew that I liked to play the guitar. And she says, you know, Jimmy, up the street, there's a family. Their son, you know, plays uh, music. You, maybe we should introduce you to. So they did, and it was David Archuleta. And David played saxophone. And so we would just sit and play, and I, I said, do you know any, anybody else who plays? And he says, well, I know the Walker family. They play piano and guitar. So we all started to Before get... Before you know it. We were playing, you know, playing at the Archuleta's house. I think this has been a part of my whole life as I think about this. I've always been sort of the person who takes the bull by the horns. So I reached out to see if we could play the local golf club. So that was my first experience before high school, starting with a band, and we called ourselves the Boutonniers.
1: Who gave you your first guitar? How old were you?
0: My father actually had a guitar that he made. So he was the one that got me started. I don't know who gave me my first guitar, but I do know my mother bought me my first electric guitar, which was around that same time. There was nobody really who was teaching, especially what I was interested in those days. In fact, in high school, I needed to take an elective, and so I wanted to take music, and they didn't have guitar. So I had to pick something else. I picked a trumpet. Oh, boy. And my music teacher hated rock and roll. And, of course, I was already playing the high school dances as and often. And he hated rock and roll. So he put me in a room by myself, <laughs> it made me sit there all all through the class and just Because you play. were
1: already a renegade, I playing was, rock and I roll doing, music. Yeah,
0: I was doing something that he didn't like. <laughs> By this time, we're starting to evolve. I think I'm in probably the end of the ninth grade. And a friend of the drummer, who was now going to be into the band, lived on the same street. And his closest friend was Ron House, who played guitar. And I said, hey, guys, you know, what we need is a bass player. Ron's dad, they were very wealthy. They had a the local grain company. And so... Ron said, so if you want to play bass, we'll we'll get you a bass, but we need to go down to to LA and to a pawn shop. So he takes us all down to 5th and Main down in LA and to these pawn shops. And we're walking through these pawn shops and he's looking for a bass for Ron and Ron finds this beautiful Fender Precision bass. And and I see this Stratocaster sitting up there and it's all beat up and it's terrible. And the guy says, uh, I said, how much do you want for that? And I think he said like, $175. $175. And they were they were probably going in those days for probably, what, 350 something like that. And I said, so um, would you take a trade? And he says, what do you got? So I showed him this guitar, and he says, oh, I'd give you 100 bucks for it. I didn't have any idea what she paid for it, but I had $75 in my pocket.
1: So that was the day you got your Stratocaster. I got
0: my Stratocaster that day, and, and I, I, I brought it home, and I realized it was in such bad shape, and the one I had given away. that was so beautiful, right? So <laughs> I went to Earl Scheib and Earl Scheib was a car painting place that would do any car, any color for $29.95. So I went in there and I said, look, how much would you charge me to paint the body on this guitar? The guy looked at me and he says, well, seven bucks. I said, okay. So I gave him the guitar and they painted it pearlescent white my mother still didn't know that I had sold the guitar, right? So once I got it back, and put it all back together, and I'm playing it one day, and she says, Jimmy, where'd you get that guitar? I said, oh, I, uh, I traded it. And she said, now, don't you lie to me. She <laughs> says, you cannot have traded that guitar for yours. I know how much that guitar, and she said, you're lying to me. I said, no, Mom, I bought it used. And I went to Earl Scheib. I had it painted. You can talk to Ron's dad. She goes, you know what? You're just never satisfied with anything.
1: (laughs) And let me also tell you the other moral to this story is mothers know everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. We have the antenna in the back of our head.
0: Well, I never lied to her, but I didn't necessarily volunteer. Correct.
1: Correct. Let's fast forward just a little bit and talk about Buffalo Springfield. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite groups of all time and how many times I have played For what it's worth, and you can hear that song in my headphones, I probably paid your mortgage a couple times just by doing that. I hope so. Such a defining, though, 60s sound. Capture for our listeners the essence, the vibe that was Buffalo Springfield. Well,
0: for me, you have to realize uh, at that time, 1966, I was working as a recording engineer at Sunset Sound Recorder's. The way this all began was is that I got a call from Gypsy who was the manager at Sunset Sound and she said, "Listen, I I have a demo session I need to do in the morning and there's really nobody available. Would you be willing to come in and do it?" And I said, "Well, it depends on how how late I work tonight. But if, you know, if I at least get done by 10, I can be here by 10, you know." So, I said, who, who's coming in?" And She says, "David Crosby." I said, "David Crosby?" I said, "Is that Bing Crosby's son?" She goes, I don't think so. No, I, I. no. So I had no idea who he was. I show up the next morning and he. I ask him what he wants. He says, I need you to set up a microphone and I want you to plug this lamp into the control room and then I want all the lights out, uh, just but this lamp. And I'd never seen one of these lamps before. It looked like a conical and it looked like it had goo in it.
1: Oh, so, oh, I know what those are, a lava lamp. yes.
0: So anyway, I set everything up, got the mics there for one person, put the lava lamp in, plugged it in, heated it up. And then his artist shows up, a female singer. So I asked him, I said, what, what, what do you want to do? He said, I just want you to record her songs. We're just going to put the tape on and record it, okay? So we start recording, and I'm listening to this vocalist. And as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, wow, she has not only a wonderful voice, but I started getting images from the lyrics, I was just really moved uh, by it, and but you know, what am I? Eighteen years old. So we finished with the session, and I said, "You know who who's uh, who's the producer on this?" So i filling out the the tape box, and he says David Crosby, and I said, "So, and and what's the name of the artist?" He says, "That's Joni Mitchell." So,
1: that was Joni Mitchell.
0: Yes. Oh my God. You know, and what's really beautiful about the story for me, and it's something I've learned over the years. Is that, you know, when somebody is really gifted and really talented, it's really apparent. You don't have to have a lot of hype and a lot of bullshit. You don't have to be wearing funny clothes or have funny hats or or no clothes. It's just there.
1: So I'm looking at the incredible talent that was Buffalo Springfield. And first of all, I've always wanted to know, where did that name come from? Well, that name came
0: from uh, Stephen. He was out in the countryside or so, and he saw this tractor, this old tractor, and the, the tractor was called the Buffalo Springfield. And so he, he just ripped the song the- <laughs> and thought that'd be a good name for a band. And he was right. He was absolutely right.
1: When the group dissolved in 1968, everyone went their own way. Crosby Stills, Nash and Young becomes a group. You and Richie become mm-hmm. Poco. Right. Take us into that time in your life. Poco
0: really started from a taxi cab ride with Richie and I. We, we were still in the Buffalo Springfield, and I was still in the process of finishing up that album. And we knew that the group was going to break up. And, and I asked Richie, I said, what, what, what do you want to do after this is over? You know, and he said, I, I, I don't know. He said, it's just uh, I'm just trying to get through right now. And I said, you know, you've written some interesting songs like Kind Woman is, you know, you must say is a little country. And uh, of course, Charles Claim to Fame with James Burton on it, it was definitely a, a very country tune. And I, I said, I, I'd really think, I mean, if you want to, perhaps you and I can work together and maybe come up with a sound. And instead of doing, you know, folk rock, which is what Buffalo Spring feels, I said, why don't we try country in there, country rock and see what that feels like. So he said, you know, I, I don't know. He says, let's just see what happens. So after my visit to, to New York and we recorded Kind Woman in New York. The problem was is that Ahmed and I had we just couldn't get the guys in the studio in California there was too many distractions so Ahmed and I agreed that perhaps it was best to bring them to New York that way there's one studio there at Atlantic he can keep an eye on what's going on they just have to go to a hotel and to a studio well as it turned out Neil didn't come Stephen got there and got lost in the village Dewey the drummer, being the spiritual man that he is, got him all spirited up. And he was so intoxicated when he showed up to the studio, couldn't use his performance at all on, on Carefree Country Day. So now I, I was really in a bind. So I, I asked Arif Marden, who was a producer there, if, if he could help me. I needed some musicians. And he said, I'll get you the best musicians. Don't worry about it. And he did. He brought them in. And the best musicians to Arif Mardin was the greatest jazz players in town, session players. And I wasn't making a jazz record at all. And he didn't know what I was doing. Hell, I didn't know what I was doing at that point because we were just still creating a whole new thing. So when the piano player asked me, he says, what what kind of feel do you want for this? And I said, well, have you ever heard any country music? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden you hear Kind Woman that goes, da, da. Da, 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 da. He's starting to play Floyd Kramer on on everything, and I went, "Oh my God!" So, we got the thing done. We got to California, and Richie and I are in the studio, uh, Buffalo Springfield session. And I said, "This just does not sound anything like the Springfield." And, and I, I think what we need to do is to put a steel guitar on this. Our guitar tech Miles Thomas said, "You know what? I, I know a, a young man out in Colorado named Rusty Young." Rusty comes in, and he's so excited about, hey, I'm, I'm playing for the Buffalo Springfield, right? They drop his steel guitar and break it at the airport. So he shows up, opens up his case, and it's unusable. So me being the idiot that I am, I said, well, you know, steven has been playing around with steel guitar. There's one in the closet. Maybe we could use it. So we bring it out. And Rusty never says anything, and he, he tunes it up. And apparently the pedals were all backwards. They didn't work anywhere. So he plays this whole solo on a C-neck, which is not a country. It's a jazz neck, right? <laughs> so he, he gives me a couple of performances, and the one that I used, in my mind, was so unique and so different. And the, the, the recording was played by jazz musicians anyway, trying to play country music.
1: Jazz trying to play country. And here
0: I had a real country steel player (laughs) trying to play jazz, right? And and really good at it. I just decided I'd keep the take. And it turned out that that particular performance is the best performance I've ever heard him do on that song.
1: When you look at the body of work for Poco, and I know for you it was a couple years, right? Three years you were with the band? What are you most proud of about Poco besides the fact that you had a prolific conversation with Richie in the in the cab and you decided you were going to do this.
0: My mind works a little different because as an artist, when I'm signed, there's an obligation I have, but I also have an obligation as a, as a producer. So I'm less likely to be caught up in this soiree of everything, but caught up in what do I need to do to get this job done and trying to get people to be there to get over and above their personalities. It's a job for me. So when you ask me that question, I'm most proud of the fact that we were able to put together a sound that was unique and different from everything else that was happening. But at the same time, there's always a risk with that. Whenever you do something different, there's always somebody that says, I I, I, I don't hear that, right? And what those people usually hear is only the past. And you know, we used to call those people followers. If somebody has a head everybody wants to follow what that's happening. But to be a unique talent, you know, like a, a Frank Sinatra or an Elvis Presley or the Beatles, it requires stepping out of the box and it, it requires doing something different. And I equate it to, and I think you can hear this in all of these artists, it's a person who's gone to college, who's ever had to write a thesis. A thesis is a is about putting two or three different elements together to create something new, and a great artist has done that artistically. Uh, they've created a thesis prior to showing up, and they've they've put that out, and that's then that's that's how it works. In Poco, was a little different. We were working on different genre, but we were keeping it in the same country rock vein, which was our undoing because it was too early. And what happened is we would take the music to a country station they couldn't play it because it was too rock we take it to a rock station it was too country even though we sold out every show I mean Boston was one of the places that we just you know you, you could never find an empty seat but you couldn't find a record sold it was one of those situations where as proud as I am of what we've created it, it also is sad to think that we never sold enough records to be able to keep the band together I think my wife and I survived on $125 a week in Poco. And it was just just getting to be not enough to be able to to make ends meet.
1: You're signed to Columbia Records as an independent producer. Flash forward to an unknown singer-songwriter, guitarist named Kenny Loggins. Tell us that story.
0: When I was on the road finishing up the Poco record, I got a call from Don Ellis, who had been hired by Clive Davis to... Work in talent development at CBS. And he said he had a, a, a partner who he'd worked with at Tower Records, Dan Loggins, who had a little brother. They thought he was very talented and was wondering if I would listen to some of his tapes. And I said, You know, I really can't do that now. I've got to finish this polka record. I said, But I plan to be done by November. I said, When I get back to town, where does he live? He said, Well, he lives in LA and it's great. I said, We'll set up an appointment and we'll meet. So I get a call from Kenny. He calls, and I said, "Well, listen, why don't we? Why don't you come over and we'll have some dinner at our place?" And my wife and I decide to make some tacos. That's easy, right? He shows up at the front door, and you know, here's this tall, lanky guy wearing a pair of Levi's that are kind of baggy, and part in his hair, and a beard, and braces on his teeth. Braces. And braces <laughs> on his teeth, and uh, I, I <laughs> uh, come on in. <laughs> he comes in, and we chat, and he's very personable, and. So I said, well, can I listen to your tapes? And he says, well, I I didn't I don't have any tapes to play. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, why don't you grab your guitar and we'll just, uh... he says, I don't own a guitar. So I'm thinking, what have I got myself into here by doing this? And I was I was kind of not sure what to do next. So I went over to my closet. I said, I got a, uh, you know, a Martin or I have a CatGut string here. You I'll take the CatGut string. So he takes the nylon string guitar and, I said, there's the microphone. Here's the record button. Go at it. So he starts playing and he plays Danny's song, House of the Corner. He does, I think, Vahivala, My Love's Gonna Tumble on You, which we never released. We what had, were you
1: thinking when you heard him? Like, were you saying, okay, maybe I should listen some well, more?
0: Again, like I said, my brain thinks a little different. And um, my initial thought was, I like his voice, right. but it's very folky most of the songs were folky we'd already been through the you know the folk era we're now we're talking about dave mason and delaney and bonnie you know uh leon russell you know what what am i going to do with this is what i'm thinking i mean what what do we do with this
1: so your producer hat never comes off
0: well not in that situation that's what my job was right and that's what i had been paid (laughs) right so we had dinner and we talked and, and, and he laughed and my, my wife said, what do you think? And I said, you know, there's something about him that I I, I love the fact that he's got lots of good energy. He seems kind and and loves what he does. I'm just not sure I can put him where he needs to be, you know, in order to sign him and actually get him out on the road doing rock and roll. I slept on it and a couple of days later I called him and I said... Um, if he how he enjoyed his time he said oh good he said i'd really like to get together i said why don't we do that so he came in and i started working with him first of all i wanted to know could he play guitar I mean he didn't seem to own one right so i let him start playing some of my stuff and i wanted to see how agile so i would play parts with him like we started playing a part on house at pooh corner and i've i did something that was more baroque uh, The the way the nitty-gritty Dirt Band had done the, the album uh, song, excuse me, was really kind of very up-tempo and poppy. And it just, I didn't get that. And what I was hearing is something that is more Baroque. Um, and maybe when I look back, the way I explained it to Kenny would be something more along like a uh, uh, sweet lady. is it sweet lady Jane, my lady Jane by the Rolling Stones. Remember that song? Mm-hmm. It had kind of a nice little, I said, it needs to slow down. And, and I said, if it's, a, you know, if it's, about children, it needs to be more ethereal. Part of me was going through the conversation with with Kenny: is how can we make this song unique? Have it say something musically and sound wise and color wise. Just like as a painter, you know, you use reds to pop forward and blues to f- fall to the back, and you do the same thing when you're mixing. And uh, so we started playing with it, and I noticed that he could play well on the guitar. He did a really good job. And so as time went on, and I I started realizing. He was working as a songwriter for ABC Dunhill, I think it was. They hired him as a songwriter for a, a number of reasons, because he loved to write songs, but he also had an epiglottal in his voice that he could make himself sound like anybody he wanted to. He could sound like Elton John, Leon Russell, James Taylor, you name it. it and, and they loved could say, hey, we need a James Taylor song. Okay, I'll write that. And he would, you know, or we need a an Elton John song, you know. Uh, Back to Georgia is very much, if you th- think about it, is very much an Elton John inspiration. And I began to, to look at that as, you know what, maybe this is what I can use to get him to step out of the folk stuff, because naturally, I think, wants to do it. And he grew up listening to his brother's, you know, what they called R&B or race music in those days. And, uh, you know, he loved that. I worked with him more and more, and I began to see that he, he was capable of doing something that I was not capable of having happen in in Poco. And that was be able to be diverse in not only the songs, but the music, so that he would have a better opportunity to be listened to.
1: You ended up being called, at least everything that I've read, an accidental duo. So you kind of had to be talked into... Staying with him. The idea was yeah. to just do one record together with Jim Messina yeah. yeah. sitting in. Right.
0: As we started to go along and I started finding his band members, Merle and Larry were in a group called the Sunshine Company, it used to open up for Poco and that had dissolved. So I called upon them to see if they were interested. Al Garth lived in the apartment below us. Al was played his saxophone and violin and stuff outside and and I, I invited him up one time and so eventually, long story short, you know. I asked him if he'd like to come to a rehearsal. Michael O'Marty and, and the keyboard player was a friend of Kenny's and they had, you know, worked together. And, and Kenny said, well, what about Michael? And I said, yeah, he's a, he's a great player. Let's bring him in. So after everything sort of got organized and, and, you know, we got the band together, the real problem was the guys didn't relate to Kenny as a boss. He just hadn't been there yet. You know, he had He never still
1: had braces on.
0: <laughs> yeah. He had braces as far as a career. And, and, and yet at the same time, he needed the opportunity to step up to the plate. And the best way to do that would be to help out. And I thought maybe the best way to help out, because he was borrowing my guitars anyway. And I was there at the rehearsals and then showing him the songs and playing the songs and singing together. It finally dawned on me that maybe the best thing to do would be to approach Clive. And the, what happened was we, we recorded a demo of what Kenny's album was supposed to sound like. And I, I turned it into Clive, and he listened to it. And he said, you know, I really like this album. This is really good. He says, there's only one problem. And what's that? He said, I should really hear a lot of you on it. And I said, well, yeah, I am, I am playing on it. And uh, I said, I, I'm just thinking in order to make this record work. Now, this us pause the thought for a second. The only way I was going to get a hit album and make any money was that the album had to come out out of the chute and be ready to be heard and played and start touring Kenny had never had an agent never had a manager he had just acquired an attorney i believe he was looking for business management there was just a whole lot of things that needed to happen in order to get him in a situation where he was taken care of so my thought was and I, i went to clive and i said look how about we approach this from the standpoint of me doing the album with kenny as a guest I'd like to call it sitting in, and he's you know he said I, I just don't like the idea, and I said why is that? And he said well, I don't want to invest in an album, and in a group that's going to break up right after the album is made. At that time, I need to do some fast, <laughs> right? And I told him I said look, Stan gets Charlie Birds,
1: you know, in the jazz world they do they this do all the all, time. They
0: do it all the time. I said look at Leon Russell with Bonnie and Delaney and there are a lot of producers that work with their artists. And I said, for me, we need to give Kenny the opportunity to get out on the road and have success. And I said, by being out on that first tour, I can introduce him to Springfield audience, my POCO audience, I'll step back, let him open the shows and then we'll bring this band and we'll make it exciting. And when it's after the tour is open, the initial release of sitting in, I pull out and then I've, now I've got an artist that I can produce as I had agreed to do. At first, he you know he said no, but he said he'd go along with it. And the reason for it, you have to give him the credit for this, is that he was so used to, and, and most record companies, it's the same situation. As a producer, I see this all the time. They invest a lot of money in an act. And, and in many cases, in those days, they also invested tour support because right. there wasn't any money. you know. To, and all of a sudden, you know, they, for one reason or another, whether it's drugs or ego, it's just... Uh, bad luck the, the groups break up you know they, they got a couple hundred thousand dollars put in there and in those days a couple hundred thousand dollars was a lot of money uh, he just didn't want to see that happen and so we went out we did the, the tour and it, the audience just
1: they were blown away you know a lot of the way that you built that great big fan base too was playing at a lot of colleges where right. college age kids Absolutely. just fell in love with this whole Loggins and Messina idea.
0: Absolutely. By the way, Clive eventually called me and said, "This stuff has been so successful." He said, "I really would like you to consider working with Kenny as a duo." And I said, "Yeah, but I, I I can't do that and produce you know six records a year, you know." And he says, "You know what? I'm willing to forego and forgive all of that if you will be willing." to work with Kenny, and just produce the records for him. He says, you know, if you do one or two albums a year, and they're as successful as these, you know, I I would be thrilled. And I said, well, we need to talk to Kenny about that. And if that's something he wants to do, then I would consider it. So I went to Kenny, and I said, well, what do you think? Is this something you want to do? And he says, well, it's working. And uh, I said, well, the only question left is, and, and you need to decide this, is if I work with you i'm still going to be producing the records as an artist and if we get to a point where i need to say this ain't working and this is the direction we need to take it and are you going to be comfortable with that
1: he said yeah he says it's working tell me the story behind the song your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll
0: well your mama don't dance was a song that lyric that i had started in a in an idea that i had almost done but i just i never finished it so I show up at rehearsal, Kenny's there, and for some reason a band's not there. So I said, hey, I have this thought and this idea, and I started playing this to Kenny, and we started listening. And to be honest with you, I, I, I don't remember what it was that he wrote or put in there, but whatever it was, it made the song work, and I felt that he should have half of it. And I always shared our publishing and writing on anything I brought 50-50, and same with him. It's just you should never let that stuff get in the way. But the song got finished before the band showed up, and they showed up, and we rehearsed it that day. And we needed that song because we needed something to close our set with. We didn't really have anything, and so we used it to close the Troubadour, and man, it just went over like...
1: The Troubadour with Your Mama Don't Dance. That must have been quite a moment. Unbelievable. Loggins and Messina, in my opinion, along with groups like the Doobie Brothers, Linda Ronstadt, Eagles... I'm an adult contemporary disc jockey from Boston, 25 years on the air. These songs have been in my headphones for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I believe that that whole era in the 70s is what created soft rock, especially because stations were starting to understand FM sounded better than AM Mm -hmm. and soft rock stations Mm -hmm. with melodic songs like you guys were singing Mm -hmm. were born because of that music. Do you agree with me?
0: Apparently, but uh, we weren't making music for radio stations, we were making music for an audience that we thought needed to hear it.
1: It just so happened that it created an entire (coughs) format, Jim, and I think that's what I'm saying.
0: I do believe, when I look back at my life as a songwriter in those days, and what I was writing and what I was feeling, a lot of that is what's connected to the music, and the audience is, is, sympathetically vibrating with what it is yes. that we're putting out. Yes.
1: So the two of you decide you're going to go your separate ways. And there's so much that has happened in your career, but it's very clear to me that the producing and the bringing of people together, the recognizing of how something should sound bringing not only the best musicians together, but being able to maybe do some talent slapping sometimes, because I think as a producer, you have to do that. You've also got a workshop for songwriters Mm -hmm. that you're very proud of, and I wanted you to tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, the Songwriters Performance Workshop was born out of me seeing a lot of songwriters wanting to be artists, trying so hard to communicate. And I started coming here, I guess, on my own after Logans Messina, maybe in the 80s or something. And I remember sitting in one evening watching this cafe called the Bluebird Cafe. You know, they're sitting in a circle and the audience is all around them and nobody's saying anything. It's a real listening audience. And I'm thinking, you know, these, these are some really brilliant songwriters. This is some great craftsmanship. But over the years, I began to realize that the greatest wines never leave France and the greatest songs never leave Tennessee. I just decided that something needed to happen that would allow for these folks to have the opportunity to learn how to express themselves. I never could attract the professionals. They didn't want to have anything to do with this, you know. Um, But the amateurs, the people who do it for the love, were very drawn to it. And the whole purpose of this particular workshop is to have a writer learn how to communicate their feelings and emotions through their words, core to core. And how important it is that the listener has the same experience so that when they hear something, they either have a thought or an image about it. If it's a good thought or a good image, it affects the feeling. And if that feeling is really resonant, then it emotionally affects the person. I don't know that any of them have become hit artists, But becoming a hit artist is is not so much whether you wrote a good song or can sing, it's whether or not you're being promoted, you're being signed, you're being put into the marketplace. In some cases, some of these people cannot do that. I mean, it is so hard physically to take that road emotionally. And, you know, some artists, the drugs hit them, it's alcohol. Some it's just exhaustion. I think anyone who's an amateur who loves to write and loves to sing and can express themselves are doing a hell of a good job at what is needed to be done. It's not important to become a head artist.
1: This is such a huge body of work and you've been doing it for a long time. And I think that makes you pretty iconic. So the next couple questions I'm going to ask, we ask someone of your stature. Number one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? This can be personal or professional that might help one of our listeners today listening to country music success stories.
0: My attorney said to me that it's important for you to realize that success is really economic independence. And in order to develop economic independence, you have to make good choices with the people that you work with. I was fortunate because I wanted to be an engineer, and I was an engineer early in life from around 17 to 18 years of age. And I ran across situations where, you know, somebody would give me some pot to smoke or give me a little bit of hash to smoke or give me a pill to take. And I realized that whenever I had smoked something, when I listened to what I had done as an engineer, it never sounded as good the next day. And also I didn't like feeling paranoid and I didn't like doing something illegal. So that sort of fell off the stick. I tried taking a pill one time. They call them West Coast turnarounds and they're They're what truck drivers used to take and apparently they're supposed to make you really feel creative and I took one and I was up for three days and boy, I did feel creative but on the third day, I thought I was gonna die. My heart was racing so fast, I couldn't go to sleep and I knew I needed to get to work the next day and it was horrible to, to have that experience. So I think over the years, not being attracted to drugs has kept me with the ability to do my job as clear as I can and also to honor my commitments that I make. It's one thing to do your job and do it good, but it's quite another thing to do that job and honor the commitment that you said you did in a time frame that people are expecting you to do it in. I believe I've met all those commitments. And um, yes, I have not had a chance to party as much as I want or hang out with the in crowd or show up to certain events that probably would have helped to make me quote, more famous. But I'm happy with the outcome of the advice that I have taken. And I don't think I would change anything about that.
1: What are you most proud of in this career?
0: Just that I managed to get here. (laughs) I mean, it's not easy. is it? It's not easy. I'm I'm proud of the fact that, to be honest with you, that I can go downstairs and I have a, a studio that I can work in. I have my instruments. I have some wonderful musicians that I work with every day. When we rehearse, I appreciate the moment. I I, I learned many years ago that happiness is the appreciation of what is happening.
1: Final question, and we ask everyone we interview this one. The key to my success in country music has been what?
0: I think all of the influences that I was able to hear from Ernest Tubb to Hank Snow to Johnny Cash to Hank Williams to James Burton all of the people who have come before me that I enjoyed listening to were very inspirational to me the hardest thing was trying to find my own voice inside of all of that and to not be a copycat and hopefully be somewhat original so that I could stand out in the bouquet
1: (laughs) which you did Jim Messina thank you so much for being our guest on country music success stories
2: thank you
0: my pleasure thank you
2: hi this is Jay-Z Don Valeris your music city mentor When Candy and I drove into the winding driveway and up to the beautiful home of Jim Messina, I just knew we were in for a day full of incredible stories and wisdom from a man whose career every young artist aspires to have. If you are just starting out in your music career, Jim has a very important lesson to pass along to you.
0: There are many lessons, but I would say that today... In the life that we're living, the most important thing is to focus on being a, a performing artist. To be able to stand on stage, perform and entertain people. And the songs that you choose are songs that you want people to remember you by. Because you can do all of that without having a digital recording or, or having a, a manager or a producer or an agent. You can do all of that. And if you do it well... All of those other things will come. And as I mentioned earlier, I do think that drugs and alcohol really do not have a place in any career, especially the career of music.
2: Jim is right on the money. And speaking of money, performing is the absolute best place to start bringing in revenue. One way to do this is to make yourself flexible performance wise. Give a venue options based on their budget. If they can pay you $100 for the night, offer them an acoustic duo performance. If they have a little bit more in their budget, but not enough for a full electric band, offer a full acoustic show where you can bring in a cajon player, an acoustic guitarist, and even an acoustic or upright bass player. Then, if they have a larger budget where you can bring in a full band, do that. If you are able to set your own price, Offer backup singers and maybe two guitarists. Offer whatever you want, but also do what makes the most sense financially. Of course, we all have to pay our dues when we're just starting out. But if you set the bar early, you will be more respected in the end, and you'll have an easier time asking for money down the road. If you give the option of three price points, which I have just touched on, it will let the venue or booker know that you are prepared and that you've handled this type of business before. It will make you seem professional and polished, and it will immediately demand respect. It's the simple thing sometimes. Going in like you've done this for many years, whether you have or you have not, will always set you apart. And always ask what you will be getting paid before you accept the gig. It will make it a whole lot easier to pull everything together and bring in a performance that the venue and you are incredibly happy with.
1: If you liked Country Music Success Stories, we hope that you will spread the word about our podcast and tell your family and friends. We'd also like to ask you a favor. Please leave a review of our show and check out our website, countrymusicsuccessstories.com. Follow us on social at Country Music Success Stories. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. Your Music City mentor, JC Don Valeris, is gathering up all sorts of wisdom on how you can break into country music if that's your dream. So don't miss a single episode. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.